There may exist a very real supernatural world and, you know, we may be drawn to it because we're meant to be a part of it. Maybe. Triggered. What do you mean she didn't trigger? Somebody's with her. That's what you say in the book. So are you a universalist who believes that everyone can go to heaven regardless of how they respond to Christ on earth? Um, intellectual universalism is dangerous, thinking that in the end everyone is going to be okay. But functional universalism is worse, living like in the end everyone is going to be okay. Heaven or hell on earth, no matter what religion you are, like accept pe other people's idea, okay? Because have you ever been to heaven? Have you ever seen it? Like, it's just not my beliefs that, you know, a, a just God will make you burn for eternity for something, for free will that he gave you. Your answer then, succinctly, is I have no idea. Pretty much. You won't know until you die, will you? Okay, this is the question for you. <laughs> what do you think happens when we die? If you were to just do a quick survey of contemporary media that's out there right now, Right now, one of the highest volume watch television shows, one of the top 10 shows on current television is simply called Supernatural. And the writers on the website describe the show as exploring how to kill the paranormal evil that lives in the dark corners and on the back roads of America. If you were to look at the New York Times bestseller list currently, one of the best-selling books in America, it was number one, it's now dropped to number five on the list, is a book simply entitled Proof of Heaven. It's a book that's subtitled A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife. One of the highest grossing movies coming out of the summer, you just saw a clip of it there, is a movie called The Conjuring. The Conjuring has already brought in over $140 million this summer, and it tells what is supposedly the true story of world-renowned paranormal investigators forced to confront a powerful demonic entity. And that doesn't even count all of the movies that have come out this summer that are the end-of-the-world genre, right? We've had our fair share this summer of the world is coming to an end movies, it's not just in contemporary culture. We did a survey here in our church last spring where we ask you to respond with some topics that you would love to see us provide a biblical perspective or a biblical worldview on some particular topics. If you're a guest today, normally at Hope, our pattern is we're studying straight through books of the Bible or sections of Scripture but every so often, we'll take some time and we'll do a topical series. And so this spring, we <coughs> surveyed our church family and said, what topics would you like us to address? And in doing that survey, what surfaced was many questions about what we could call the unknown or the supernatural. Questions about angels and demons, heaven and hell, the end of the world and what happens when you die. So this weekend, we are kicking off a series that will carry us through the entire month of September, five weekends, 
And we're going to be examining what the Bible has to say about some of these difficult questions surrounding the supernatural. For example, this weekend, we're looking at the question, do angels and demons really exist? Next weekend, we'll explore the question, what is heaven going to be like? The following weekend, we'll examine the question, is hell a real place or does hell really exist? Then the following weekend, we're going to look at the question, is the world really coming to an end? And in the last weekend of this series, we're going to wrestle with the question, how do I know what happens when I die? So that's where we're headed for the next five weekends. So put on your seatbelt, right? We're going to have a great time together over these five weekends. But as we we look at this, I want to open with an introductory verse of Scripture that's a great launching pad for us. It's found in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29 and verse 29. And I want to read you this verse as somewhat of a disclaimer today as we begin, all right? Look at it on the screen. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. That verse tells us about two things. Number one, it tells us about secret things. And here's what that means. There are some things we just don't know and won't know this side of eternity, all right? So if you think that over these next five weekends, we are going to answer all of your questions, you are going to be sorely disappointed, all right? Because that is not going to happen. There are some things that are left a mystery to us in this life. But let me say this about that. Don't let that discourage you. It should encourage you today that there is a God in heaven that is bigger than we can fully comprehend and understand. If I could understand and articulate everything about God, let me tell you something. That would not be a very big God. But when the things in life grow and, 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 and become mountains in front of us, it is very encouraging to know that there is a God who sits on the throne of the universe that is bigger than my ability to completely comprehend. So there are secret things. But then it says there are things revealed, meaning God, through his word, has given us a revelation. God has given us truth that does bring answers to many of life's questions. There are some things that we won't know and will never be able to answer. But over the next several weekends, we are going to look at some things that we can find some answers to. The Bible says they're revealed. The word revealed in Hebrew means to uncover. It's the idea that God has has peeled back the curtain and given us insight into some things that we would never have discovered on our own. But because God and his word has given us his truth, we have ability to know some things that we could not discover without God's revelation. So... With that, let me give you kind of a life application statement that I hope will be an anchor as we walk through this study together. I'm going to put it up on the screen, and I want you to read it out loud with me. You ready? One, two, three. The things we do know provide an unshakable foundation in the midst of things we don't know. The things we do know. We're going over these five weekends to unpack some truth that God's given us that we can know for sure. And the things that we know for sure 
will give us an unshakable foundation in the midst of some things that we still don't know. So with that, I want to jump in this weekend and begin to talk about the subject, do angels and demons really exist? Now, as I was preparing this week for this message and thinking about this, I'm almost, I'll be 42 years old in October. And 42 years of living and going to church since nine months before I was even born. That's how long I've been in church. I don't ever remember hearing a sermon on angels and demons. So part of me this week thought, what in the world are you doing preaching a sermon on angels and demons? Because as we begin to unpack this, uh, there's a mystery to some of the things we're going to talk about. God gives us some truth. Uh, but, but my prayer for you as we, we look at this is that it will encourage you in your walk with Jesus and your love relationship with Him. So I want you to open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read some introductory verses, and then we're going to use these as kind of a launching pad into this subject matter. And let me just go ahead and tell you, we're going to look at a lot of verses this weekend, all right? So take your thumb and kind of lick it because you're going to be flipping around a good bit if you got your Bible with you. Or we're going to also put all these verses up on the screen and, and, and we'll try to walk through this as best we can this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to begin reading in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So what I want to do this morning is give you four things we know for sure about angels and demons. Here's the first one. We know the spiritual world, including angels and demons, is real. We know that the spiritual world is real. How do we know that? Because the Bible abundantly teaches that. Here we've just read the writings of a man named Paul. Now, it's important that you understand (laughs) who Paul is. Paul was one of the leading intellectual scholars of his day. Paul had been trained and educated in the highest educational system that existed in his day. Paul was viewed as an intellectual. He was viewed as a scholar. And he was somebody that wasn't always a Christian. At one point, Paul was trying to stamp out Christianity. He was literally trying to murder Christians. And Paul here, after coming to Christ and experiencing Christ in his own life personally, is now writing to us about the struggle that we have in life. And the word struggle that he uses here is a word that refers to hand-to-hand combat. It's the picture of of a Greco-Roman wrestling match. And Paul says, as we live life in this physical world, it is important for us to understand that the struggle, the battle, life is not just physical. The spiritual world is very real. You may know the name John Milton. John Milton is a famous English poet from the 17th century. John Milton wrote the famous poem, Paradise Lost. Uh, 
John Milton was a well-respected intellectual in his time. Listen to what John Milton said. Millions of spiritual creatures walk the earth unseen, both when we sleep and when we awake. Now, what John Milton is saying there is exactly what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, that the struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's principalities, it's powers, it's rulers of dark places. There is a spiritual world. And here's what I want you to see this morning. The unseen spiritual world is as real as the visible physical world that we live in. If this morning... You were given the ability by God to be able to see into the spiritual world. I think all of us would be shocked at what we would see, the reality of the physical world. That the spiritual reality is as real, if not more real, than the physical world we live in. You say, why would you say it's more real? Here's why I'd say that. Because the physical world that we live in is one day going to come to an end. And we're going to talk about that in a few weeks. You've got to come back, all right? Not answering that question today, but let me just go ahead and give you a little bit of an idea. It is coming to an end someday, but the spiritual world will, re- will, will remain forever. The spiritual world's not coming to an end. It's even more real in many senses than the physical world that we live in. Now, I want to give you another quote by a, name, by a man named Archibald G. Brown. You may have never heard of Archibald G. Brown, but he pastored a church in London, England called the Metropolitan Temple or Tabernacle. Now, you may not have heard of Archibald Brown, but the man that pastored that church before him you probably have heard of, and his name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Many of you have read the, the writings of Spurgeon. Listen to what Archibald Brown said. The existence of the devil and demons is so clearly taught in the Bible that to doubt it is to doubt the Bible itself. Here's what he's saying. The enemy would love for you and I to say it's 2013. I mean, (coughs) really? A spiritual world? Is this an episode of the Twilight Zone? What what are you talking about? The enemy would love for us to simply disbelieve in the reality of a spiritual world. But here's what Mr. Brown tells us. The Bible so thoroughly teaches the reality of a spiritual world that to discount the reality of the spiritual world is to discount the very authority of the Bible. You can't separate it. It's so interwoven into the teachings of Scripture that you can't pull the two things apart. First thing we know, spiritual world is real, including angels and demons. Second thing we know for sure, we know where angels and demons came from. We know where they came from. You say, where'd they come from? Well, both the Old and the New Testament teach us consistently that angels were created by God. Angels are not beings that have been around forever. They were created by God. Let me show it to you. Psalm 148, verses 2 and verse 5. Look what it says. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded, and they were, say it out loud, created. God created them. The same truth is taught to us in the New Testament. Paul again writes... In the book of Colossians chapter 1, and look what he says on the screen. For by him all things were created. 
both in the heavens and on the earth. Now, what are the next three words? Say it out loud. Visible and invisible. Whoa. You mean God made some stuff we can't see? That's exactly what that says. That God not only created the visible, physical world that we live in, but God also created the invisible, spiritual world that we cannot see. He says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. In the creation account, We read the story in the book of Genesis of God's creation of the world. Now, we cannot pinpoint exactly when in the creation account God made angels. I'll tell you what I believe. I believe that angels were created in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, when the scripture reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then in verse 2 it says, and the earth was formless and void. I believe in verse 1, he created everything in the heavens, everything in the heavenlies, which is a, a term that describes the invisible spiritual realm, that everything there was created. And then from verse 2 through the end of the creation story, we read the specific details of everything that he created in the physical realm. But we don't know for sure. We just know that by the end of the creation story at Genesis 1, everything had been created. Let me show it to you. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. Look at it on the screen. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was what? Say it out loud. Very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all there, say it out loud, hosts. Everything on earth and everything in the heavenlies by Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, had been created. God made the angels. What's an angel? I want to give you a definition out of a book by Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem wrote a book, his, his book called Systematic Theology. If you're somebody that loves to study Bible theology, one of the greatest books you can ever have as a resource is Grudem's Systematic Theology. But let me prepare you, if you buy it, it is the size of a cinder block, all right? You'll finish it in about five years. It'll take you a while to read that book. (coughs) But Grudem's Systematic Theology, here's how he defines angels. They are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, but without physical bodies, Now, I am no scholar like Wayne Gruden, but if I was going to add one phrase to his definition, I would add, with great power. Angels are powerful beings with moral judgment and high intelligence created by God. One of the things that we have, we have a lot of misconceptions. When we think about angels, we start thinking about Cupid, right? I mean, we think about these little squatty people in diapers with wings and a... a, uh, Uh, bow and arrow, right? We start thinking of angels like that. But listen, you need to change your mindset about angels, all right? You need to think more like Superman without the cape and the underwear on the outside, all right? Angels are powerful, highly intelligent, very moral beings created by God. Now, how many angels did God create? Well, again, 
We don't know. We don't know for sure how many he created, but we do have some insight into how many angels God created. The Bible, both in the Old and New Testament, uses a word to describe the number of angels. And and in both the Old and New Testament, it's translated into English with the word myriad. You ever heard the phrase myriads of angels? Well, that's a Hebrew word and a Greek word that basically mean the same thing. And here's what the word myriad means. Too many to count. That's what it means. It means innumerable. Sometimes that's how it's translated in the Bible, as innumerable or unable to count. So the Bible tells us that God created these highly intelligent, very powerful, with great moral judgment beings in the spiritual world, and there's more of them than we could ever begin to count. Let me give you a quote by Millard Erickson in his theological work. It is a comfort and encouragement to us to realize that there are powerful and numerous unseen agents available to help us in our time of need. Amen? Isn't it encouraging to know that God has created untold millions of supernatural beings who exist to help us in our time of need and struggle? And we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. But I know what some of you are thinking right now. Well, pastor, that explains where angels came from. Uh, But what about demons? Where did they come from? Well, let me try to answer that by giving you a definition of what a demon is. Here's Grudem's definition of demons. Angels created by God who were originally good. We know that because at the end of Genesis 1, he says they were very good but who sinned against God and now continually work evil in the world. That's a demon. Demons originally were a part of God's angelic host. One of them was a man or an angel named the Old Testament and the Latin Vulgate names him Lucifer. Lucifer, Satan, was one of the angels that God created. We learned that in two places in the Old Testament, and I want to give you the two references. I'm only going to read one of them, but I want to give you the other one so that you can read it later on on your own. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 19. Ezekiel 28, 12 through 19 describes Satan, and it calls him the anointed cherub, which probably indicates that Satan originally was one of the choicest of angels, probably one of the two or three archangels, one of the the, the angels that were ruling over all the other angels. That was Satan's role in the angelic host. But the Bible tells us that Satan rebelled against God. The place I want to read for you is Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse number 12. We're going to put it up on the screen for you. Here's what it says. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. And that phrase star of the morning is where the Latin translates that Lucifer from a Latin word that means star or bright and shining one. O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth. You who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. 
I, you hearing a repetitive theme here? I will sit on the mount of assembly. I, in the recesses of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And then listen to this. I will make myself like the most high. You hear it? Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Here's what happened. We don't know why. We don't know how. Satan became filled with unrighteousness. and Satan wanted to be God himself. Which ought to by itself raise a serious warning about any so-called religion or faith that says it received its orders from an angel that says you can be God just like God is God. We better pay very careful attention to the information that we receive because that's exactly where Satan began. He wanted to be God. It's the same temptation he offered Eve in the garden when he said, look, if you eat of that tree, the reason God doesn't want you to eat of the tree is because you'll become God like he's God. The Bible tells us that because of Satan's fall, he was banished from heaven. It's recorded in Ezekiel 28. After being banished from heaven, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4 tells us that he led with him one-third of all the angels. One-third of all the angels believed his deception and they were banished from heaven. How many is that? Well, it's one-third of myriad. (laughs) One-third of more than you can count. But here's a... Well, and and, and some people ask, well, when did that happen? When did the fall happen? Well, again, we don't know. But we do know this. It happened somewhere between Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, and Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, when Satan appeared in the garden. How long a time was that? I have no idea. We'll have to ask when we get there, right? When we get to heaven, you can get in line to ask that question. I don't know. I don't know if it's a day. I don't know if it's weeks, if it's months. I don't know. You have to get in line behind me because I'm going to be there to ask. But we don't know. But here's what we know. Somewhere between Genesis 2-1 and Genesis 3-1, Satan and one-third of all the angels were kicked out of heaven after rebelling against God. But here's a great misconception that I want to clear up from what we've already said this morning. I want to put it on the screen. Satan is not an equal foe to God. He is simply a fallen angel. Sometimes we give Satan way more credit than Satan is due. We live sometimes with a spirit of fear. Listen, you need to know something. Some people have the idea that it's God and his team of angels and Satan and his team of demons, and there's this conflict going on. Listen, nothing could be further from the truth. God is the only one who is sovereign and sitting on the throne of the universe. God is in a category all by himself. There is no one on equal par with God. Satan is simply... An angel that was created by God who chose to rebel against God. 1 John 4, 4 says it this way. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen? Say that with me. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We know where angels and demons came from. Number three, 
we know what angels and demons do. We know what they do. Now, this is part of the message where there's way more information than I can give you in one setting, all right? When you, when you study to preach God's Word, you have to become very comfortable with understanding that you're going to leave a lot of information on the floor of your study. I mean, there's just a lot of information here. We could have spent six weeks just on this topic. But what I want to try to do is give you some summary statements that help us understand the role of demons and angels in the world today. And let me begin with this opening sentence by Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. They said, angels and demons have great power as compared with humans. Now you hear that and you get a little bit intimidated, but read the rest. But little power as compared with God. Amen? Little power as compared with God. So let's look at demons first and then we'll talk about angels. What do demons do? I'm going to give you two statements. Number one, demons search out weaknesses in people's lives. Let me explain that. I said something a minute ago that's very important that I hope is eye-opening for some of you today. Satan is not God. Satan's not equal with God. God is omnipresent. What does that tell us about God? That God is always everywhere. You can never escape the presence of God. That goes with being God. Listen to me. Satan is a fallen angel. He is not omnipresent. Here's what that means. Satan is only in one place at one time at any given moment in history. I hear people say all the time, oh, you know, Satan made me or Satan did this. Listen, can I just be real honest with you? None of us have probably ever been significant enough on on the radar that Satan's ever really personally paid attention to any of us, all right? There are bigger fish to fry out there in the world that he is focused on. Satan is not omnipresent. Satan is not omniscient. God is omniscient. What does that mean? God knows what you're thinking even before you think it. God knows everything. Satan's not omniscient. He doesn't have all knowledge. He doesn't know what I'm thinking. Satan can't read my mind. God is omnipotent. That means that God has all power. Satan's not omnipotent. Not only is he not omnipotent, his power is under the control of God who's sitting on the throne. The Bible teaches us about angels and demons. They can't do anything without the permission of God himself. But demons serve as his instruments to observe our lives and plan a method of attack. They look for weaknesses. I read Ephesians 6 at the beginning, and Ephesians 6 was this phrase. We're to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You ever heard that phrase, the schemes of the devil? Well, the word scheme is a Greek word, methodia. We get an English word from it. It's the word method, and it describes methods or plans. It is a developed strategy based on observation. Let me try to unpack it for you. Yesterday was a great day in American culture because yesterday was the beginning of college football. Amen? (laughs) It's a great day. 
I mean, that's a day to throw a party. That's a day to celebrate. That's a great day in America when college football begins. I love college football. Being from Alabama, I really love college football. College football is a great sport. But, but let me tell you how, how football coaches kind of work. What a football coach does in preparation for a game is a football coach orders game film from the opposing team. And they spend hours and hours, sometimes weeks and weeks, watching game film of the opposing team. Now, why do they do that? Here's why they do that. They are watching that film to find some weaknesses in the strategy of their opponent so that when the game begins, they can develop a strategy that particularly focuses on and takes advantage of the weaknesses in the other team. You follow? So a coach watches game film and looks for those weaknesses and builds their entire system. For example, if a coach watches game film and he notices this pattern that every time on third and fourth down, this particular team runs the football. You know what that coach is going to do? He's going to plan his defensive strategy so that on third and fourth down, there are going to be seven or eight guys in the box, what they call that that zone right there around the line of scrimmage. He's going to put seven or eight guys in the box because he knows what they're going to do. They're going to run the ball. Satan, through demons, observes us. That's that idea of a scheme. He can't read our mind, but he watches us. He knows where our weaknesses are. And he develops an attack to expose and take advantage of our weaknesses. Have you ever wondered why the enemy comes against you in this area, but it's like he don't ever bother this person? In that area. I mean, it's like you can't get away from it. It's a weakness. It's a struggle that you're... Con- and yet, this person over here doesn't... You know why? He comes against you one way and against... Because he's watched you. He's observed weaknesses and he's developed a scheme. A.T. Robertson is a great Greek scholar. He says about this word scheme that, that our enemy is a crafty foe and knows the weak spots in the Christian's armor. Do you know how to overcome the enemy? It's really simple. Live a life of repentance. Let me go back to the football analogy. If you run the ball on third and fourth down every time, you know how to really mess up the defense who's prepared to stop the run on third and fourth down? Guess what? On third down, you throw the ball. And when you start throwing the ball, now the defensive coach is over there going, I don't know what to do because they're not doing what we saw on the film. They're doing something different. we got to rethink our whole strategy. When the enemy comes and he begins to lay that temptation in front of you and he begins to try to seduce and deceive you because he knows your weaknesses and he's seen you fall over and over again, listen, here's what you do. You recognize it for what it is. You expose it as a lie and say, God, today, by your grace, Lord, would you allow me to live in the truth and no longer in the lie? And God, would you give me victory over this garbage in my life? And let me tell you what that does. That sends the enemy scrambling. He doesn't know what to do because now you've changed your method of living. 
That's living a life of repentance. Living in the truth of God. That's why in Ephesians 4, Paul said it this way. Be angry and yet do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil. And what's the last word? Opportunity. The word opportunity is from the Greek word topos. We get our branch of study topography from it. It literally means a spot or a place where something is done. Here's what he's saying. When you and I begin to live in repentance and we turn away from sin, we remove the place, the position, the opportunity for the enemy to have victory in our lives. It's living a life of repentance. The demons, they they search out our weaknesses. Number two, demons seek to destroy people's lives. Jesus said about our enemy that he came to steal, kill, and destroy. 1 Peter 5.8 says it this way. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to, what's the last word? Devour. The devil's purpose is to destroy the lives of people. He and his demons, that's their motive. And I want to speak to it on two sides. First of all, today, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there's only one thing the enemy really can do to you, and that's his primary objective. He seeks to destroy your testimony in this life. You see, as a child of God, And we're going to talk about this in a little bit too. As a child of God, there is nothing that the enemy can do to separate you from Jesus. Amen? Hey, that's a good place to say amen. As a child of God, there is not one thing the enemy can do to thwart your personal relationship with God. But what he can do is get you so wrapped up and try to live out of your old life and trying to live outside the truth of God that it destroys your testimony and your effectiveness in the kingdom of God. Listen to the way Grudem says it again. He says, demons will try to use temptation... Doubt, guilt, fear, confusion, sickness, envy, pride, slander, or any other means possible to hinder a Christian's witness and usefulness. Well, what do we do? How do we handle that? Well, let me read you the verse again. First Peter 5, 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Look at the next phrase. But resist him. Firm in your what? Say it out loud. Faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by you, by your brethren who are in the world. Here's the point. You're not going through this alone. Sometimes the enemy comes and we think, man, nobody else is battling the way I'm battling. Nobody else is struggling with what I'm struggling with. Nobody else has the thoughts that I have in my mind. Nobody else has these weaknesses. No, listen, here's what the Bible says. We all got them. And the enemy knows that and he's trying to come against us. But the Bible says we have the power through Jesus Christ to live in victory over that and to resist him firm in our faith. Well, What does that look like? How do you do that? How many of you have ever heard the phrase, resist the devil and he'll flee? Let me see your hand. Most Christians have heard that phrase. You know the problem with that phrase? We've pulled it out of its context and made it stand by itself. There's a phrase before it and a phrase after it that's real important. 
Resist the devil and he'll flee. What's the one before and after? Most people don't even know. Let me show you. Resist the devil and he'll flee. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. My mentor, Clyde Cranford, illustrated it this way to me. It was so powerful, I've never forgotten it. He said, Vance, it's like a little boy walking on the sidewalk, and his dad is walking a few steps behind him, and they're just walking up the sidewalk, and the classroom bully from school comes running up to the little boy and gets in his face, starts to try to pick a fight. And that little boy, instead of taking the bait, he just moves around, behind his daddy now the bully is face to face with daddy and the bully don't want none of what daddy wants to bring right you have an enemy but let me tell you something you're not alone And our Father has not said it's up to you to go take him on and fight him. Here's what the Word of God says. You resist him by just moving around behind Daddy and letting Daddy take care of business. Because listen, when the enemy is face to face with the Father, he does not want what the Father can bring to the table. Resisting the devil isn't about me mustering up strength. It's about me running to the feet of Jesus Christ and allowing Jesus to give me victory to overcome the enemy. And isn't it awesome how even in spiritual warfare, the key is being back at the feet of Jesus. It's all about our love relationship with him. Don't try to do that on your own. Live in victory in Christ. But not only is he trying to destroy the testimony of believers in this life. I want to say a word about what demons and the devil are trying to do in the lives of unbelievers. People that don't know the Lord. You see, in their lives, demons are not just trying to destroy their testimony. They're trying to destroy their soul in this life and the life to come. You see, demons... The devil will use any method, scheme, plan, strategy possible to keep us from the truth of the gospel. Let me show it to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of of God. In Africa, I've seen and met with pastors who've dealt with demonic activity that takes on every form that you see in the Bible to deceive and mislead people away from the gospel. In America, we don't always see demonic activity the same way it's in Africa. But let me tell you what, it's nonetheless demonic activity. The devil doesn't care if you're following witch doctors or sex, drugs, and rock and roll as long as it is blinding you from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will use any method, any strategy, any plan to deceive you from the truth of the gospel and to blind you. 
If you're here today and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to be aware that there is a spiritual world that is real, that is doing everything within hell's power to keep you from understanding the truth about who Jesus is and how desperately he desires to save your soul. Now, before I move on to talk about angels for a minute, let me, let me just wrestle with one question that I know people are asking today because it's one that always comes up. What about demon possession? Demon possession is real. People can be possessed by demons. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, let me encourage you. Believers in Jesus Christ cannot be possessed by demons. You say, how can you say that? Well, think about the word. Possession. What's the root? Possess. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you already possessed. <laughs> let, me, let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, look at it. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Let me tell you what that means. You belong to somebody. You are already possessed. The God of heaven by his Spirit dwells in you, and nobody but Jesus will ever possess you. Possession is control from within. Oppression is attack from without. Believers cannot be possessed. We can be oppressed. They can attack us from without, but they cannot possess us from within. Why? Because somebody else has already taken up residence there, and that space is filled. Amen? Let's talk about angels. Y'all got to listen faster. Let's talk about angels. Angels, let me give you three statements that angels do today. Number one, angels worship God and carry out his instruction. They worship God and carry out his instruction. In Isaiah and in Revelation, the Bible says that angels gather around the throne of God 24-7 and sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Psalm 103, verse 20, the Bible says, Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his Word. Angels carry messages from God. Angels often in the New Testament were messengers that brought messages to people on behalf of God. As a matter of fact, the word angel in the Greek language literally means messenger. Angels can bring messages from God. The Bible tells us in Hebrews, we don't have time to look at it, but in Hebrews that sometimes we encounter angels unaware. Here's what that means. Sometimes God puts angels in our path, gives us the ability to physically see them, and we don't even know it's an angel. Now, that'll make you think how you handle your business when you leave, right? <laughs> Sometimes God uses angels to minister to us. God, God uses angels to bring judgment. God uses angels to control nature. In the Bible, God uses them to overthrow nations. God uses them to defeat demons. Angels are powerful beings created by God who worship Him and carry out His instruction. Number two, angels guard and serve the people of God. And with that, say amen. Amen. Listen, angels guard and serve God's people. Let me show it to you in the Bible. Psalm 91, verse 11. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your 
ways. Isn't that encouraging to know that God has created an, a number of angels that's so large we can't even count? And listen, our team's got two-thirds, right? Two-thirds to one-third. We outnumber them two to one. And the Bible says that, that he's given those angels charge to guard you. It means to watch carefully over you, to keep you, to preserve you, to care for you. God's given us angels to do that. Now, this is where a lot of people begin to talk about guardian angels. Anybody ever heard of the phrase guardian angel before? People want to know, does God really give us each a guardian angel? I don't know. I don't know. But here's what I do know. Whether the coverage is man-to-man or zone defense, we are covered. We're covered. There are other places in the Scripture that, that, that teaches, I think maybe specifically we do have guardian angels. That's my conviction. We can't prove that in Scripture. But here's what the Bible says. Whether or not they got me specifically assigned to one angel or there's a group of angels watching out over us together, we have been given angels who are guarding over and protecting us and keeping us safe. Let me give you a third thing that angels do. They watch with great expectancy God's glorious purpose fulfilled through us, the church. I want to read you something. This is so encouraging to me. Ephesians chapter 3. I want you to hear what Paul writes. Ephesians chapter 3. Listen to what Paul says. Look at it on the screen. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Here's what Paul's saying. God called me to be a preacher of the gospel to Gentiles, people that have never heard the gospel before. Paul said, I don't deserve it, but God in his grace has given me that. Look at verse 9. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Here's what that means. In eternity past, God in his heart established a plan of redemption. That God was going to enter time and God was going to redeem out of humanity a people unto himself. He was going to do all that through the glorious work of Jesus on the cross. That Jesus came to die for our sins. He was buried, but he rose again from the dead. And through the proclaiming of the gospel, this mystery that had been wrapped up in God's heart, the the plan of God, the eternal story of redemption, Paul says, we're now getting to be a part of that, but Paul says, it's been a mystery hidden from everybody, listen, including the angels. Look at verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who's that? The angels. Verse 11, and this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's what that means. Every Sunday, every day, when we gather together as believers, here's what those verses say. Angels in heaven are sitting on the edge of their seat. They know that there's a mystery. They know that God is accomplishing a plan of redemption. They know that Jesus came and died and rose again. And they know that one glorious day, Jesus is going to come and bring it all to an end. But they don't know how it's all going to play out. So when we gather together, they sit on the edge of their seat. And that's why the Bible says when one soul gives their life to Christ, angels in heaven begin to rejoice. And they say, glory to God, there's another one. 
And when that one comes to Christ... When that one comes to Christ, the angels gather and they say, oh, I wonder if this is the day. I wonder if this is the day when the Lord is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. They are watching the gospel and the kingdom of God. Hey, how to make you want to participate in worship? Amen? <laughs> angels are watching. And they're not just watching. The text says that God is revealing to them through us. God, through us, is revealing his glorious plan of redemption to the angels as we gather to carry out God's activity in the world. Let me close with this. We've got to be finished. Number four. We know that our security in Christ is greater than the angels and demons. Amen? Look at these verses. We'll close with these. Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor, what does it say? Angels nor principalities, that's demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor, just in case I've forgotten anything, any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus. Listen to me today. Don't you leave this place. Don't you leave this place thinking that it's all about angels and demons. Listen to me. It's not about angels and demons. It's all about Jesus. Listen, Jesus is the one who came. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the one who lived a sinless life on our behalf. Jesus is the one who offered that life on the cross for all of our sins. Jesus is the one who became sin for us. Jesus is the one who died on that cross. Jesus is the one who was buried in that tomb. Jesus is the one that on Easter Sunday morning defeated death, hell, and the grave. Jesus is the one who is now sitting at the right hand of the Father ever interceding for us. Jesus is the one who will one day return and bring all of the world as we know it to an end. Listen, it is all about the person of Jesus Christ. And there is not an angel nor a demon in hell that can separate us from the love of God that is found in Jesus. So the real question of the morning is not, do you believe in angels and demons? The real question of the morning is, do you believe in Jesus? And listen, when I say believe in Jesus... I don't mean just know that he exists because the book says in the book of James that even the demons believe in Jesus and tremble. They know he's real. To believe is not to acknowledge some facts about him in your head. To believe is to surrender the control of your life to the person of Jesus. Have you ever come to the place in your life where you yielded the control, you turned from your sin and gave your life to Jesus Christ.